I'm Spencer. And I'm Andrew, and you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today we'll be speaking with Alexander Rose, who's the executive director of the Long Now Foundation. Um, it's a nonprofit based in San Francisco that promotes long-term social and cultural production. He is an industrial designer who shares several design patents on the 10,000-year clock with Danny Hillis. The clock, which is monumental in scale, is currently under construction in West Texas. Alexander is someone who definitely shares our appreciation for the long view, holer thinking, and someone we immediately had in mind to have on when we started this new podcast. Let's get him on the line. Welcome, Xander. Thank you for joining us on At A Distance today. Tell us what's currently on your mind. What's at the top of your mind right now, beginning the fourth week of, in the U.S. at least, this quarantine? Well, I think we're starting to see a bit of shift out of the looking at the next few days to people really looking at the next few years, and then also looking at the deeper past of how we got here. Mm. And, you know, I think there's there is this initial response of no one ever could have predicted this. And then as we start looking at the past, everyone starts realizing that this has been predicted over and over again. This is not mm-hmm. what you would consider a true black swan event, um, but a totally predictable, but very long interval event. And we're really bad at these as as societies. I mean, we see this with asteroids, tsunamis, earthquakes. I mean, there's just a number of these things that, that are on the order of uh, a century or more that if you look at the, you know, you look at the discourse right after the 1918 pandemic, or even um, countries that were affected more recently by SARS, they all had systems in place right after this. But now when you, when it goes so far out of social memory and even generational memory, we get left in this place where only scientists in dark corners are saying that this is going to happen and no one is budgeting for them or making making the larger societal connection. Um, so it's it's an interesting, specifically kind of long now-ish problem. Uh, you know, the yeah. foundation that I work with, the uh, Long Now Foundation's main goal is to get people to think longer term and to to take these kind of things more seriously. And, and this is yet another one of these that that we don't take seriously, and it's interesting to watch it happening again. But to me, the real question is how do we how do we get that societal and civilizational memory to feel as real coming out of this, the generation that comes out of this, as it needs to feel another century from now? Mm. Did it take a moment after the sort of initial hit of the crisis for you to kind of orient yourself to this new reality? And to start thinking about the ways of using this moment for kind of what's going to happen in the emergence out of it. I mean, it was the reality of what type of situation this is was very top of mind for me, for um, those of us that work at Long Now. But it didn't change the fact that we had to get very tactical, very fast. And, you know, the strategic part of things had to go on hold Mm. while, you know, literally we're just trying to make sure that our staff is taken care of. We run a cafe and a bar as part of our operation. And all of a sudden we had these hourly, you know, staff that we wanted to take care of and we didn't want to leave out in the cold. So, you know, we had to get tactical very fast. Everyone, I think, in the world did that. Also, at that time, not knowing was this a couple weeks, a couple months, what was this? No one was really thinking it was more than a couple months as we were as we were stepping into this situation, even though there was there was no argument for how this could truly end short of much longer term 
things like levels of, of herd immunity and vaccines coming out, which all take years um, and potentially a lot of suffering. So it was interesting with no real answer on the other side, how confused people were going into things like the quarantine and making the decisions kind of in these weird, slow, usually every decision seemed to take about three steps. Everyone said, all right, we're going to put this off for a month, mm. you know, whatever it is that they were doing, travel events, whatever. And then they, you know, oh, well, we're going to put it off for a little bit longer. Now we're going to put it off indefinitely. Now, now we don't really know. Like now, now we may never have this. <laughs> yeah. So it's, a, it's a, it's, it was an interesting kind of watching everybody go through this multi-phase mm -hmm. delayed decision making process. And then at a, at a certain point, all the calendars have been now been just been wiped. So it's a, you know, obviously very few people have, have witnessed civilizations going through this type of thing, especially on a global scale. And Unlike the 1918 pandemic, we have things like the internet, which are, you know, a kind of fantastic communication system that is both being used to really help people and connect people. And it's also being used to have all kinds of bad information move around the world. And as much as it's helping people make smart decisions, it's helping people make stupid decisions. Well, that's part of the problem right now. There's this sort of noise that's feeding a ton of anxiety and stress and fear that's coming out of that. And one of the ways that at least we've been thinking about dealing with it is, is keeping our minds in the sort of bigger picture and looking at what this moment is revealing and how we can sort of use that in the emergence from it. So I'm particularly interested in how you've been thinking about how to make people shift towards longer term thinking by using this moment. Yeah, well, we are, we're just in the process of shifting as an institution. We typically, we would do 30 to 40 events a year um, yeah. with invited speakers, ranging from people like Daniel Kahneman, you know, thinking fast and slow, and even science fiction writers like Neil Stevenson, all these kind of people who have long-term thinking perspectives. And it's all, it's often fairly abstract thinking where the consequences are these things that we talk about that could happen like this. But now that's become much more real. We obviously we can't hold live events anymore. So we are flipping that to virtual events like many institutions. And we're about to start holding our first of those. And mm. typically here in San Francisco, we'd have an audience of somewhere between 500 to 1400 people um, at our live events. We'll see uh, what, what it brings for our online events and our online community. But we're going to have two events in the next uh, couple of weeks. One is actually going to be the Long Now Board doing what's called a long conversation, a format that we worked with uh, originally a group called Art Angel out of the UK on, where it's a relay conversation. It's two people in a one-on-one -on -one unscripted conversation, and then one person swaps out every 20 or 30 minutes. Mm. And so you have this conversation that never ends. Fantastic. With all kind of amazing people. And so we have both some of our past invited speakers as well as some of our board. We're, we're going to be announcing the date on that one shortly, but that'll be you know somewhere between a four and six hour conversation that you can tune into at any time and hear a set of people reflecting on the moment. I'm um, kind of like the way we are doing now, but a, really a, a larger breadth mm. of backgrounds of people. The next talk that we're doing, it was originally a scheduled talk with Jane Metcalf on neobiology, so the new kind of synthetic biology revolution that's going on around the world. And that talk, I think, has become really interestingly relevant in all kinds of different ways than it was before, because synthetic biology may well be the thing that that allows these types of events to never happen again, mm. or at least be solved at a vastly faster rate than yeah. the one we're living through. And so that one has 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 become really top of mind and and 
was by accident going to be our next talk um, and is now is now going to be our next normal talk in our series. And then we're, um, we're also just starting to look at a lot of our past content, which we're bringing back out there. People like Taleb, who wrote about the Black Swan events. We've had talks by Larry Brilliant, the epidemiologist who is the leader behind curing smallpox. And we've had all these past talks that all of a sudden that content becomes much more relevant. So we're trying to Absolutely. place that in a good way to, to remind people that we, we as in civilization, not we as in long now, knew that these things were going to happen. We just need to have better mechanisms for listening to the mm. people who are telling us. I'm curious, like based on your understanding of the situation, also your long view mindset, how do you see or envision this pandemic playing out going forward? I mean, I will caveat this by saying, you know, I'm an industrial designer and a nonprofit administrator. I'm not an epidemiologist <laughs> um, or a, a civic engineer, but from everything that I'm looking at and from the past that I've looked at, I think the likely scenario is that we are going to invest in extremely widespread fast testing and we will slowly half open our economy once we get kind of 100% or very close to 100% level testing out in the world where almost everybody that's out in the world has been tested. And then we're isolating the people that are sick. So I think South Korea is obviously the best model on this. They, they basically never close their economy by doing this very early on. Mm. I think how we isolate people is going to be a very interesting question here in the United States with the way people fight for their individual rights in a way that's very different than uh, Asian cultures, I think. Yeah. But that's, I think, how we're most likely going to solve the 6 to 12 to even 24 month problem. And then there's going to slowly be a large growing and growing body of people who have had the disease and it still remains to be seen how immune they are, but they're also going to have a certain level of antibodies, which will be game changer for them. But that's right now on the order of a few hundred thousand people out of 340 million here in this country. And eventually there's going to be a vaccine. Um, and how we fast track a vaccine like this, I think, is unprecedented. And there's going to be many different types of vaccines, some that are more near-term prophylactic and some that may be more longer term. And we may mm -hmm. have a strange stutter step of that, as well as people getting different versions of different companies' vaccines in a really non, you know, much less even method than we have seen with something like the usual vaccines kids get when they're kids now, which are very uniform. And I suspect that what we're going to see is a, a really distributed set of vaccines. And some may work a lot better than others. And we may see, you know, flurries of people getting the disease again, uh, because of that. But that's, mm -hmm. from what I'm looking at, that feels like what's going to happen. I don't feel as though this is going to happen in a, an extremely organized and thoughtful way. We don't seem to have the type of government that, and the type of population, to be honest, that I think is going to handle that well. Mm -hmm. Clearly, this moment does call for some immediate thinking, but I'm wondering from your point of view, do you see some dangers to that? What are some of the dangers, I guess, to short-term thinking in this current crisis? A couple of ways to think about that. One is that, what are we calling short-term, right? So short-term can be what are you doing today and tomorrow? It can be, what are you doing over the next six months? Mm -hmm. Right now, long-term is basically anything past six months. Um, mm -hmm. So we, we kind of get into this mid-term thinking zone of, of how people are thinking about just how this is going to unfold while we're in quarantine versus um, as we come out of quarantine. Then there's the truly long-term, which is, what about the next one of these? And, and I will predict that the next global crisis level type of event is not going to be a, another um, 
pandemic. It will be something else, a massive hurricane system or a an earthquake or a volcanic eruption that shuts down, you know, a huge chunk of the world's airline trade. So it'll be another one of these long interval events. And we'll mm. then have to think about how we do those things better. And it will be hard to keep remembering this one. Um, I think the good news is a lot of the a lot of the types of preparation that we do are have huge amounts of overlap. Certainly on a personal level, they have a lot of overlap. That's good news. But I think, you know, when you talk about something like pandemics and asteroid impacts, they really have to be prepared for at a governmental and civic level that takes a lot of leadership and it takes a lot of courage, especially during the times when when they're not happening. Right. And how you stand there as a leader and allocate budget when there's there's hungry people, there's people without health care. Those needs get more and more pressing every single day that a long-term surprise event like this doesn't materialize. Mm. Yeah, what are the ways that you're thinking about how to ex almost extend the memory of this moment? It's kind of like, what can we harvest from this to bolster the thinking of long-term coming out of this? Well, I think storytelling is a huge part of this. You know, I was just reading the story about how George W. Bush in 2005 read a, a book about the 1918 pandemic and actually made this a top priority of his administration. Even with 9-11, mm. the Iraq war and Katrina, literally it was right after Katrina, and he walked it into the head of FEMA and said, we have to have a plan around this. This is this is going to happen again. And mm. the head of FEMA, you know, argued and said, I've got a lot of other problems to deal with. And he, they pushed it heavily. And then it slowly petered out over time. But that story was powerful. And it's those kind of stories that that can cut through to politicians in a time when a scientist may not be able to get to that politician. So right. you know, unfortunately, we're, we live in a world where decisions are getting made by people who are generally don't have a lot of scientific background and are not good at risk assessment. They're generally, they're really only good at handling things that are right in front of them. But a good story told in the right way is pretty powerful. I think a lot of progress was made by, you know, when the Skull Global Threats Fund funded the Contagion movie, um, where they did a truly science-based thriller. I don't know how much it changed our preparation levels, but it I think it really has helped the general population as they revisit that movie kind of get a sense of what this is what this can be and how how it's going to affect society and it was you know played out i mean it's played out almost identical to that movie in many many ways and we even have you know charlatans you know pushing fake ways of of curing the disease and all the things that that movie had i think is a scenario type of scenario planning and visual storytelling that has been really helpful so i think anything we can do in that space where we we write down our experiences we make this we make this a real and powerful story that can move on. It's really one of the only things we have mm. for getting people to remember. There's there's interesting examples through time, and even in the Japanese tsunami, there was a, a hilltop that was at a strange confluence of geography that 500 years ago focused a tsunami wave that was coming in, and everyone had ran to this small hilltop and were all killed at this hilltop. And they erected a, a monument there that told that story. And when the 2011 tsunami happened, mm -hmm. people knew not to run to that hilltop and they avoided it and no one died on that hilltop. So it's, you know, we have examples where the right type of storytelling placed in the right context works. 
and how to do that in more for more complex things and how to keep that context is is really the question mm. yeah and a lot of this has to do i think with emotional connection you know connecting emotionally psychologically with the the listener the reader what are some of the benefits you think of taking the long view on emotion and psychology yeah, it's an interesting question uh, where emotion fits in long-term thinking, you know, because long-term thinking often feels like work that you have to do. It feels mm-hmm. like this extra thing that you have to think about that's non-relevant to what you're, what you're trying to work on. Mm-hmm. How do you connect emotion to something like responsibility over centuries? And, you know, I, I think you... It really gets into the famous Jonas Salk quote of how can we become better ancestors and what do we wish our ancestors have done for us? Mm-hmm. You know, we, we right now wish that our ancestors could have found better ways of keeping this top of mind and this story told better for us than they did. You know, they were they were in a really tough place. They were walk, coming out of World War One and walked right into the largest global pandemic um, after losing, you know, basically an entire male generation and walked right into a pandemic. So I think they were reeling from that. And I think they were in a very bad place to tell this story well, because so much horror had happened in just the five years in that space. Um, I think we're in a better place to do it. We also have better storytelling tools. We have better communications and distribution tools. We have a larger and broader population that I think can tell more stories. So I'm hopeful that we have better tools, we're better placed than than they were, but I'm not totally certain how to keep that level of emotion for 100 plus years. It's a really interesting question. You know, and, and further to that, I think this idea that we have to tell the story of Corona or do we need to tell the story of, of how we responded as a species to this? And, and hopefully that can be applied to the climate crisis, to other things that we're facing. As you said, the next, the next problem we deal with might not be a virus, it might be weather-related. And, and so one of the things that we've been thinking about, how the, you know, what this reveals is this kind of whole earth thinking, which I know, of course, you're very tied to with the long now. Stuart Brand, I, I'm kind of curious about what the most important story to tell in your mind at this moment while we're inside of it. What's really the story to tell out of this? Is it virus related? Is it more about us as a as a species? I mean, I think the kind of the amazing story about this our current situation is really just how connected we all are. You know, we're connected for the good and for the bad. We're a species that, you know, no matter what your race and your background and your thoughtfulness or less, you know, if you don't believe in it or not, it doesn't care. And it is, it has connected us through epidemiology. We can all get it. And no matter, you know, if you stood up on Fox News and said this thing was fake, you're going to get it still. Mm -hmm. So that is a level of connection that I think the world has not ever felt. And I don't think, you know, the types of things that connect the world like that are some of these disasters. I've mentioned asteroid threat many times here, but, you know, something like hearing a signal of life from another world or an asteroid threat. These are the kind of things that I think connect us at a very basic human level. And this is even more so. It's so intimate, this idea that this strange little protein that's not even alive by most measures of life is so catastrophic to us as a species is a level of connection that I think is there's a power there and I, I don't know exactly what to do with it yet but I think mm. I think it's something that's worth that's worth thinking about 
the other part of this is it's completely isolating um, by its nature, and we literally are having to isolate. And so mm. it's a very strange, and of these types of world disasters and things like that, you know, you can't gather in large places and talk about them the way we would debate something of political importance or even some of these natural disasters where people would typically would get together in large venues and, you know, shout at each other and, and argue these things. And we're in this strange place where we can't do the thing that we have done civically. We can't protest you know, when the government is making decisions that are these sweeping new regulations on our civil rights, on freedom of speech, how do you protest that? It's a really strange problem where both authoritative governments can grab power as well as um, very visionary governments can help the population in ways they never could before. Mm. Yeah, I also think that that there's something in terms of the sort of species-wide effect of this and the connectedness, there's also something about our relationship to nature and are we of it or is it the other? And, and I was curious from you, being that it sort of crossed over, um, and then this weekend we learned of the tiger in New York that that has it. Yeah. Yeah, strangely, cats seem to be, this is now that there's many incidences where cats are getting this disease, which is a wild one. While Tiger King is... Yeah, so yeah. while Tiger King is on top of mind for everybody, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but specifically, I'm curious what, what your thoughts are about in terms of how this might shift our relationship to nature, the human versus nature. Well, I mean, in many ways, the story of the last 5,000 years has been how humankind has divorced itself from nature, what we're now calling many people are calling the Anthropocene, but in a way, the, the definition of the Anthropocene to me is really how much, how much we have been changing the world to suit us versus how much we changed ourselves to suit the world, which for the all of human history, we, we reacted to the nature and the world. And it wasn't until the modern, ac modern agriculture and cities and, and these things that we, and you know, animal husbandry, that we started changing the world really to suit us. And, you know, as that happens, there's, as we gain better and better control over things, we get satellite weather, we get all these things that we start to feel as though we have a grip on even some of the most chaotic systems in the world and that they don't affect us. You can live in a modern city with modern lights and electricity and never, almost never feel as though weather ever affects you, day or night affects you very much. And at the same time, there'll be these strange moments where a hurricane hits New York mm. or a volcano erupts and shuts down a whole section of the world's airplane transportation, or this one that we're in, where we realize we're very much at the nature of mercy. And we only have so much control over these things. And, you know, we see everyone now scrambling to get a vaccine, which is that that attempt of, of trying to grab hold of nature and have it not control us, mm. rather than the way this would normally play out in a population, which is that a whole bunch of people would get it, a whole bunch of people would recover, a whole bunch of people would die, and we refuse to let that be our reality. Mm. That's the way it's going to play out in a lot of the global south, um, places that don't have the resources and trying to control this in a place like Mumbai is just not going to happen. Those people are largely going to die and um, get immunity through through just getting the disease. Um, so we're going to see both versions of this play out, and it's going to be horrific. And we have to look at ourselves as a species and see you know, how we care about that that type of uneven distribution. We, we face it all the time, but it's usually mm. a lot easier to ignore than it will be as the bodies pile up in certain parts of the world now. 
Mm. It's going to be a very tough lesson, and it's it'll be harder to ignore in ways than I think it has been before. Mm. I think going forward, this sort of concept or notion of the long now is something that more people should be thinking of. And I was curious, just sort of thinking back to 1996 at its inception, the names coined by Brian Eno. How have you seen it in your mind? How have you seen it evolve? And what are your hopes for the future with the long now? When Long Now was started at the end of the 90s by people like Brian Eno, Stuart Brand, Danny Hillis, uh, Paul Sappho, Peter Schwartz, Esther Dyson, Kevin Kelly, these people that were very much part of the first digital revolution, um, at least behind the scenes in a lot of cases of the first digital revolution, that came from a place of a very high optimism that you know all we had to do was connect the world with these tools and then everything was going to be better. And if you remember that time, you know, the biggest cry of that era was, was the digital divide with the people who didn't have the tools. Mm -hmm. And like that, when was the last time you heard someone care about the digital divide? Like the problem is no longer that people don't have the tools. The problem is everybody has the tools and they're able to be used in ways that spread misinformation. They've unwound the normal news apparatus that created fact-checking. It also democratized it, but that democratization also means that people don't have to all listen to a single well-fact-checked news source. So that all has played out over the last 20 years. Literally, this year was is been the year where Long Now is, is revisioning itself as, you know, if, if we were to start Long Now again today, how would we be looking at the next 25 years that is going to be the next generation as we replace our founding board members with new people and work with different people? And so uh, to me, I think what used to be seen as a largely Bay Area-centric um, kind of think tank type of conversation we have to flip that and turn this into a global conversation about long-term thinking. We have to invite vastly more people into it. We have to do it still in a way where great viewpoints can find a voice that might not otherwise. Mm -hmm. But I think we have to we have to make this conversation around global uh, long-term thinking to be a global one that everyone feels welcome into, and is not about you know a small number of people in one region of the world talking about a moment. So that's that's what we have been working on. All, we were working on this already at Long Now, and now I think it's it's even more important than than it ever was. Yeah, it's, I mean it's fascinating. We 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 think about you know you're talking about the early days like Stuart Brand, Whole Earth Catalog. I mean, how relevant is Whole Earth Catalog right now to the quarantine? This idea of kind of finding agency through this sort of self reliance, the daily tasks, the things you did yourself. We're all in a way living that way right now. Yeah, this this apocalypse is, is, you know, we all thought it was going to be like the road warrior apocalypse. And it's really like the Laura Engels Wilder home on the prairie apocalypse. <laughs> exactly. Like everyone's getting good at pickling and home gardening. And exactly. Knitting. We're, all, we're all living this whole earth catalog. Right? I know. Home ec, it turns out to be like what everybody needs more than any other thing. And, you know, self-reliance, uh, solar panels, all that stuff has become yeah. very top of mind compared to where am I going to find my fuel? Like fuel turns out to be free and infinite now. Like nobody, yeah. nobody wants fuel. We're not going to be warring on the plains of Australia over fuel, but we might be warring, you know, for toilet paper at the Walmart. So it's a it's a funny version of this that I don't think I don't think anyone really thought the 
home gardening and pie making and all these things were going to be the skills of, of the apocalypse that we were going to live through. Everybody's talking about their sourdough starter. Yeah. You know, so, <laughs> so I, had, I had one one final question for you, which is something um, that I find so beautiful about um, your physical location is the books, the idea of these are books you might want to have with you if you wanted to restart a civilization. What books now, after coming through this, would you add to that library? So we created this library um, when we built our our physical space, the Interval in San Francisco, called the Manual for Civilization, and we had room for about three thousand, thirty five hundred books or so. And you know, as when we had that that bookshelf space, we thought, you know, as long now, what is the collection of books we should have? It's not a huge collection, it's not a tiny collection, but it's uh, it's this kind of funny size thing. And what we chose to do was to find the three thousand or so books that would be most helpful for both sustaining as well as restarting a civilization. So, you know, a kind of a thought experiment of, you know, if you were dropped off on Mars with 200 of your best friends and some information, what information would you like to have with you? And so the four categories that we collected across are things like the classics of literature, a section on both past and future. So that's kind of his, the right, you know, history books that are really instructive, as well as books on futurism and, and ways of future thought. A small section on science fiction, especially rigorous science fiction that was good world building for, for how to think about the future in good storytelling traditions. And then the last one was called The Mechanics of Civilization, which includes everything from how to deliver babies to how to make food to how to create steel and, and manufacturing and electronics and, and all of these things. So we, you know, we have these categories and we have fantastic books on sourdough starters and, <laughs> and, and mycology and, and basics of bringing back our industrial culture and you know, medical books. Um, you know, I asked people who, uh, a woman who, who does, uh, who's a midwife who's, who delivers babies in Africa every year as part of a thing that she does as her midwifery practice. And I said, you know, what are the 10 books that you make sure are on the shelves at that clinic in Africa? And so we got these kind of amazing books, um, both from kind of intellectual leaders as well as very practical people like that. And so I think we actually, we have a good start. Mm. We've collected about, we have, I think, 1,800 titles out with the room for almost another, you know, 1,500 or so to go. And we continue to collect. And I think new works will be written during this time that are going to be worthy of collection, not just the oldest ones. Mm. I'd love to be sitting with that library right now, I have to say. Right. I know, it's it's so sad having that place closed right now. But you do have access to a huge chunk of it. Most of it has been scanned and is on the Internet Archive. And as you may know, they have declared the old system that the Internet Archive had is that you had to check out a book. A physical book had to be on their shelves to digitally check one out as a way around copyright. But they've declared a library state of emergency and they have unwound that. And mm. um, again, you know, speaking of the things that are kind of the positive changes that have happened in the world, you know, we kind of are suspending the normal ways that a, a digital lending library works and allowing as many people to check out books as they have wanted to. I think we have about 1,200 of the 1,800 titles oh, wow. digitized already. Um, we continue to digitize more. I think that project of digitizing that collection um, is certainly moving to the forefront. It's unfortunately a thing that has to be done in person, so it's a it's a more difficult thing to do right at the moment. But certainly having these collections digitized seems more important than it ever has. Well, this has been really fantastic. Thank you so much for giving us time today. Thank you for having me. Uh, this was a really enlightening conversation. Great to meet you guys. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Take care. 
Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At a Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter exploring the five senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv.